What a blessing to hear voices harmonizing and musical instruments backing up those beautiful voices. Thank you. There are chanting religions. There are preaching religions. There are praying religions. Christianity is unique in that it's a singing religion. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? The only reason any human being ever formulates poetry and then creates a melody to attend it is when that human being is seeing something beautiful that needs to be expressed through art. Another way of saying that is the only reason to sing is if you're in love. And that's what you feel coming through in worship music. Do you sense it? What a blessing. Thank you so much. Well, I can't sing, so I have to preach. And I'm going to ask you to explore with me Daniel chapter 8. Now, as we get into Daniel chapter 8, I need to call to your attention something that is happening in modern society with increased frequency. You've no doubt heard about it, and in a crowd this size, it's probably happened to a few people. And what I'm referring to, of course, is identity theft. Now, identity theft takes place when somebody somehow gets hold of some of your details, some of your information, your name, for example, your phone number, your email address, maybe your social media handles. They may even, they may even be able, by gathering up your rubbish in the middle of the night as you put it out on the curb for the people to come along and take your garbage away, there are rubbish thieves who then go through the rubbish and they find your discarded mail and they may gather some bits and pieces of your banking information. And then they take all that data and they pretend to be you. And then you become responsible for that pretense. You are blamed for what is done in your name. Let me say that one more time. You are blamed for what is done in your name. You may even have huge financial debts that you had nothing to do with, but now you have to pay them because your identity was stolen and you are held responsible for what has been done in your name. Well, what we're going to discover is something rather fascinating in Daniel chapter 8, which is a theme of Scripture. And in order to get there, I have a series of questions that I want to ask you just to get the wheels turning. Have you ever wondered why so many people hate Christianity? Not everybody. I don't hate it. You don't hate it. But let me just whisper a little secret to you. There are parts of it that I do hate. There are expressions of it that cause me to recoil and back up and wonder. Let me ask the question this way. Have you ever wondered why atheism has become increasingly more and more popular in our world? It is the fastest growing philosophical slash, some would even say religious persuasion on earth because people are holding atheism with religious fervor and devotion. Or let me ask the question this way. Maybe this gets a little bit a little bit more to the point. Um, have, you ever, have you ever wondered why not believing in God would be more attractive than believing in God? Something must be seriously wrong 
when the most beautiful person in the universe is unliked, canceled, rejected. Something must be terribly wrong when a God of infinite other-centered love is pushed back on to the degree that people would actually prefer an abysmal belief system with no meaning whatsoever, a belief system in which all we are is evolving animals, and when we die, there's nothing more to it, a belief system of atheism, there is no God. What would make, what would make something that dark, that empty, preferable to Christianity? Well, something's going on in the world because I'd like to bring to your attention some of the most prominent atheist voices over the last 20 or 30 years. The man on the screen before you is Christopher Hitchens. He is now <clears throat> deceased. His most popular book, New York Times bestseller, worldwide bestseller, is titled God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, you would think Christopher Hitchens, being the intelligent guy that he was and the scientifically oriented guy that he was, that his book would offer maybe some arguments against God that would be in the realm of evolutionary biology, for example. Maybe he'll quote Charles Darwin as the reason why he doesn't believe in God, but he doesn't. He says things like this. God loves you so much that he created hell to torture you forever in case you don't love him back. So in other words, Christopher Hitchens is what we might call a protest atheist. He's not promoting atheism from the perspective of evolutionary biology. He's saying there's a picture of God that is so rationally untenable, so emotionally unattractive. There's a picture of God that is so ugly that I can't possibly believe it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, are you expecting me to believe that there is a supreme being somewhere in the universe who is attempting to torture me into love with him? And he finds this completely irrational. I don't know about you, do you find it irrational? I think I would agree with his atheism. I think I'd be more comfortable hanging out for pizza dinner with Christopher Hitchens and having a discussion than maybe some people who are more religious. Maybe, in some ways, we have more in common with unbelievers sometimes than believers. What about Richard Dawkins, who wrote the wildly popular international bestseller, The God Delusion, translated into so many different languages, I don't even remember how many. I'm traveling around the world in every airport I go, and it's, it's just during the time when it was first published, about the first two years, it was just there at every bookstore, everywhere, in every language possible. Now, Richard Dawkins is, in fact, an evolutionary biologist. He's a scientist. So you would expect, if you cracked open his book on the God delusion, which is a promotion of atheism, what would you expect to find? You would expect to find Richard Dawkins appealing to evolutionary biology as his polemic against God, against religion. He does mention it in passing. But the whole book is really a diatribe against bad religion. So he says things like this. 
an institution guilty of inquisitions, that's a big word that we don't use anymore, he's referring to a historical period of time when the church bearing the name of Christ slaughtered millions of people in the name of Jesus because they weren't Christians or because they were heretics who didn't agree with the specific teachings of that particular church at that particular time. So he says, an institution guilty of inquisitions, protecting child rapists, homophobia and misogyny has moral authority. Makes sense. He's speaking rhetorically. He's being a smart aleck. He's, he's not... He's not saying this institution has moral authority. He's saying, how could you possibly believe that this institution has moral authority? Are you tracking with what he's saying? In other words, Richard Dawkins, foremost atheist, highly educated scientist, is saying, I don't believe in God because, well, it's just too ugly. I just can't wrap my mind around it, let alone my heart. I couldn't possibly fall in love with the God that has been painted on human consciousness down through history. I couldn't possibly believe in that. And what about some of the more popular voices that, that the general population hears from? There are popular atheists like Gwyneth Paltrow, actress, and the, uh, I don't know, she's got something going on called goop. I'm not sure what that is. But Gwyneth Paltrow says religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. It causes war. Now, you could pause right there as a religious person. Maybe you're a Christian, and you think, oh, that's an exaggeration. Okay, fair enough. It's an exaggeration. But she's definitely exaggerating for effect, and there is a very significant percentage of truth to what she's saying. She goes on, and she says, more people have died because of religious conflict than any other reason. Go ahead and argue with her. Stack the numbers. I don't think you're going to find that the general tenor of what she's saying is false. I think you're going to find that history, especially Western civilization's history, is a history that has soaked planet Earth with blood. I think that's what you'll find. And what about Taylor Schillings, the star of the popular television series Orange is the New Black? She was asked, do you believe in God? She said, are you kidding? Of course I don't believe in God. Why? Because I love On the Origin of Species by, by, by Darwin? Does she appeal to evolution? No. All of these people, when they push back on God, are pushing back on theological perspectives that they find irrational and emotionally unattractive. So Taylor Schilling says, I don't believe that a billion Indians, by which she means the entire population of India, which are mostly Hindus, and the Christian church or branches of it have said, all those people are going to hell unless they believe in Jesus or the version of Jesus that we've been trying to communicate to them. So you can hear what she says. Maybe you'll have some critique. Maybe you'll have some pushback. Maybe you won't agree with everything she says, but she's making a point. I don't believe that a billion Indians are going to hell. She's pushing back like the other guy, Christopher Hitchens, on the doctrine of eternal torment. I don't think that people get cancer to learn a life lesson. She's speaking in layman terms of a doctrine of the church called predestination, where God causes all phenomenon and human beings have no say in any of the outcomes of life. Everything's predetermined. 
Sometimes it's called Calvinism. She's pushing back on religious beliefs. And she says, and I don't believe that people die young because God needs another angel. This is a belief. This is a, this is a perspective. This is a picture of the character of God that has been communicated. And Taylor Schillings has heard this picture of God, and she has pushed back on this picture of God. She's not pushing back. She's not pushing back because of some kind of well-thought-out scientific theory. She's pushing back because of something she finds too ugly to believe. And what about Brad Pitt? Beautiful, beautiful Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, what does he have to say? I think he dated the other two girls that we've already... Anyways, that's a different subject. I was brought up, he says, I was brought up being told that things were God's way. This is, again a doctrine called predestination. I was brought up being told that things were God's way. And when things didn't work out, like a cancer diagnosis or a little girl is molested by her father or uncle or brother, or there's a car accident and a father ends up a paraplegic, the prepackaged religious answer oftentimes is it's the will of God for your good or maybe for the conversion of your Aunt Diana. But he says, I was brought up being told this. I was raised in a religious home. I was raised in a religious home that taught me that when things don't work out, it was God's plan. I don't understand, he goes on to describe the God he doesn't believe in. I don't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. Then I'll give you eternal happiness. And if you don't, if you won't, well, then you don't get in. Nobody's going to heaven except for those who stroke the ego of God. Now, what you witnessed here in our worship service was not a stroking of the ego of God, but the adoration of a God whose character is worthy of love, not an ego stroke. But he was raised being told something about God. And he says, he says, it seems to me to be about ego. And I think Brad Pitt, even though he's not a religious authority, he probably is an authority on ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. He said, I just can't believe in that picture of God. And a big question for me, he says, as he's being raised in a Christian home, a big question for me was fairness. How many of you think fairness is a good idea? Raise your hand if you think fairness is a bad idea. Okay, we think fairness is a good idea. So, so we're kind of in sync with Brad here. I, I'd grown up in, if I'd grown up in some other religion, would I get the same shot? Would I get the same shot, he means, at salvation or eternal life or heaven as, as Christians get? What, what if I was raised a Hindu? What if I was raised a Muslim? What if I was raised in Bangladesh? Would I am fairness? He cares about fairness. Do you care about fairness? He does. So you might find more in common with some of these unbelievers. What about Mr. Bean, also known as Rowan Atkinson? This is the only unfunny thing he's ever said. What is wrong, he says, with inciting intense dislike of a religion if the activities and teachings of that religion are so outrageous, irrational, or abusive of human rights that they deserve to be intensely disliked. Do, do you hear his question? He's saying, why should I believe in something that is so ugly 
that I would be forced to put my own intellect in neutral in order to agree with it. Are you asking me to be an idiot? Because I'm trying not to be. That's what he's saying. I'm just assessing what religion seems to be saying, and I don't think it's rationally appealing, and I don't think it's emotionally attractive. So I'm going to make a suggestion to you this morning on the premise of what we're about to discover in Daniel chapter 8. Because Daniel chapter 8, I'm going to suggest, actually foretold exactly the phenomenon that we're witnessing in our world where religion has become increasingly unattractive to people. I'm going to suggest to you that religion has done more to produce atheists than any other factor. Not Netflix, not Instagram, not worldliness, all of those may be factors figuring in to tempting people and leading them away from the Lord. But that's not what's going on in the colossal big sweep of human history. No, 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 no. What's happening in the, in, in the colossal big sweep of human history is that religion has done more to put a bad taste in people's mouth about God than any other factor happening on planet Earth. Many people who don't believe in God, listen carefully, many people who don't believe in God don't believe in an ugly picture of God that is nothing like God as God really is. Right? So like the girl I met who was cutting my hair one day that I told some of you about at some point in our history together over the last 10 years. She began cutting my hair and we had a discussion about religion and she said she was an atheist. She didn't believe in God. And she asked me if I believed in God and if I was an atheist, and I said, no, I don't believe in God either, I'm an atheist too. And she said, oh, man, I'm glad to hear that. I wouldn't want to be cutting the hair of somebody who wasn't an atheist. That was the implication. I said, well, would you mind describing for me the God you don't believe in? And she described the very God I don't believe in. So my atheism and her atheism were in sync. She described a God who tortures people for all eternity, she described a God who predetermines who's saved and who's lost, and they have no say in the matter. She described a God who protects pedophilia in religious institutions. She just kept describing the God she doesn't believe in, and I said, ah, oh, I don't believe in that either. But she was not describing the God that's outside of the box that she was describing that I actually do believe in. So I said something to her after she said something to me. She said to me, I can't believe in God because I have higher moral standards than he does. Well, you can do what you want with her. I found her delightful. I found her to be a thinking young adult. I found her to be really trying to probe the nature of things. I found her as somebody who cares about fairness and people and she saw the abuses of people doing religion and hurting people in the name of God, and she said, I don't believe in God, not because I don't believe in God, but because I don't believe in the picture of God that has been presented to me. So she described the God she doesn't believe in, and I said, what if God himself is an atheist? She said, that's a weird thing to say. I said, I agree. <laughs> it is a little weird what if God himself doesn't believe in the God that much of 
religion is trying to make people believe in. What if God looks down upon the world and the big sweep of religious history and says, none of that rightly represents me. My identity has been stolen. What if that's what's going on? Because in Daniel chapter 8, what we encounter in Daniel chapter 8 is the most monumental, the most astounding the most diabolical act of identity theft in human history. I'm telling you that that's what's going on in Daniel chapter 8, just in case all of the material we're about to get into is a bit much for you, because Daniel 8 is a bit much. So right now, you already know what Daniel 8 is about. We can close with prayer right now, and then you could go home and read it yourself, and you would discover that Daniel 8 is telling us that there is a massive act of identity theft that has occurred in human history, and it is the identity of God that has been stolen, and he has been grossly misrepresented in the consciousness of human beings so that people find themselves in a situation where it's easier for them not to believe than to believe because they're looking for beauty, goodness, and truth, and all they've seen is irrational ugliness that they're being told they ought to believe in or else. So Daniel chapter 8, what's it about? Well, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, Daniel says that in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, he had a vision, and this vision appeared to him, he says, and he said it was to me, Daniel, he's qualifying that because there's an earlier vision in chapter 2 that actually was given to King Nebuchadnezzar that he interpreted. So he's saying this one came to me, this didn't come to somebody else, this is a vision that came to me. And he then qualifies, he says, it came to me after the one that appeared to me the first time. He's referring back to what we talked about last time we were together. A week ago, we were here and we talked about Daniel 7. That was Daniel's first vision. And he's saying, I got another vision. I had one, and it was about this lion and this bear and this, this leopard and then this terrible dragonish kind of beast that had no parallel in nature. That's the first vision he's referring to in verse 1. He said, I got another vision. Now, in this, in this next vision, he says, now this time what I saw is a different animal. I saw a lion and a bear and a leopard and a dragonish kind of beast, but now I got another vision, and this time in my vision, I saw a ram, a ram with two horns, and one of the horns was higher than the other horn, stronger than the other horn. This is, as we're about to discover, a, a depiction of the media Persian Empire. This was a, an, an amalgamation of two empires, the Medes and the Persians that came together, and the Persians were stronger than the Medes. And so this union of two empires to make one was called Media Persia, and one horn, one of the empires, was raised up higher and more powerful than the other horn. So he says, I saw a ram, and I saw this ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal, that is no kingdom, no empire, could withstand him. The Media Persian Empire is expanding its territory, it's conquering North, south, east, west, it's expanding. That's what he's describing here. But then he says, then he says, I saw, I looked, and I saw, and I considered, and suddenly there was a male goat. I saw a ram, right? I saw a ram with two horns. But now I saw a male goat come from the west, from the west. The male goat came from where? From the west. 
And this male goat that came from the west across the surface of the whole earth. Just get yourself a good book on the, on the history, a biography on Alexander the Great. And you will indeed see that from the west, Alexander the Great swept across the surface of the earth, conquering as he went until he finally came to the Media Persian Empire. And this goat, we're told in Daniel's prophecy, had a notable horn. The notable horn is Alexander the Great in the vision. And it says, then he came to the ram, this, this goat with this notable horn. He came to the ram. Who's the ram? The ram is the Media Persian Empire. He came to the ram with the two horns, right, which had, he had seen standing beside the river, and he ran at him with furious power. Alexander the Great and his, his Greek military ran with furious power at the Media Persian Empire and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. We know that that's what Daniel's talking about because later on in the vision, in verses 20 and 21, which we'll get to in a moment, he just explicitly tells us, actually it's the angel Gabriel who explicitly tells him. An angel appears because God says to the angel, hey, would you please explain to Daniel what he just saw in his vision? Because he doesn't understand it. Make the man understand the vision, God says to Gabriel. So Gabriel shows up and says, yo, Daniel, I'm here to tell you that the ram is the Medo-Persian empire and the goat is the Grecian empire. So we know, we don't have to guess, there's not even any interpretation necessary. You don't have to do any exegesis, nothing. We're just told explicitly who these empires are. Now here's something that's very crucial to understand with regards to the prophecies of Daniel. If you have the first powers in the vision clearly identified, ram, goat, Medo-Persia, Greece. And then the next power that is identified is not specified. Why? Because it is yet in the future, as we're about to discover. If we know that the first power is Medo-Persia, the second power is Greece, but the next power in the sweep of history that is unfolded in this prophecy, if that next power is not explicitly named, well, all you have to do is just take a peek at Wikipedia or some history book and say, okay, what, what power, what empire, what kingdom then came against Greece and absorbed the Greek empire? And of course, it was Rome. So you, you don't have to guess at the interpretation of these prophecies. And out of one of them, that is, out of one of the horns of this Grecian empire, I'm leaving some stuff out for the sake of time. I'm skipping down. There's a notable horn, and that's Alexander the Great. But then the Greek empire was divided into four empires, divided up to the four most powerful generals of Alexander's armies. And out of one of them, that is, out of one of the divisions of the Greek Empire, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. We know from history that, in fact, the Roman Empire did, in fact, conquer what we know to be Greek civilization and appropriated Greek culture the Caesars themselves were students of Greek literature and the philosophers of Greece. But we know that something different began to happen with the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire didn't, didn't just 
conquer in the direction of the, the south and the east, but toward the glorious land. And when we come to the time of Christ and you read the Gospels, you find, you find something that you all know if you've read the Gospels, and that is that Israel, the glorious land, is under Roman rule at the time of the birth of Christ. We're aware of this, right? When Jesus is born, according to the Gospel of Matthew, he's born into a Roman world that is saturated with Greek culture that has been appropriated by the Roman Empire. When Jesus is born to the world, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not all of them, but I think Matthew and Luke specifically inform us that Caesar, Caesar was in power and took a census and uh, that census that was taken by not Julius Caesar, but Caesar Augustus, the second in the line of the Roman Caesars, that Caesar did a census, and that's what, according to the Gospels, led Joseph and Mary to take their baby boy Jesus and flee from Judea, from their homeland, to Egypt, uh, and to escape the diabolical plan of one of the local leaders that was a vassal of the Caesar that tried to take his life. So we have before us the ram and the goat. The ram is Medo-Persia, the goat is Greece, and the little horn is Rome. But specifically Rome, the little horn is described, specifically Rome in its papal, form, its papal phase of existence. You remember, if you were here last Sabbath, we did Romans 7, and we, we, we noted in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel said, ah, this fourth power, the Roman Empire, was different than all the others. All the others were purely secular and uh, political powers, military powers. But the Roman Empire is different because it had two phases of existence. It had the pagan, secular kind of political military phase of its existence. But then, during an event that occurred that is called by some historians the Constantinian shift, Emperor Constantine gave power to the popes of Rome and the Roman church became the dominant power in the place of the now crumbling and falling pagan Roman Empire. So the little horn in Daniel chapter 8, as we read the description of it, is a description of the Roman Empire in its Catholic phase, its papal phase. Is everybody with me? Still, How about the children? Are the children with me? How about the teenagers? Are you with me? You're still thinking about Brad Pitt's beautiful visage, aren't you? Okay, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just forget about Brad Pitt for a minute. And let's understand what's taking place here in Bible prophecy. Because then in chapter 8, verse 13, something else happens in the prophecy that we're going to talk about next week in detail. I have one more session with you in this little three-part series, Daniel 7, 8, and 9. So we're doing chapter 8 now, and when we come to verse 13, then I heard a holy one, that would be an angelic being, and uh, this holy one was speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one, so this is a conversation between two angels that Daniel is listening in on. And one of the angels says to another angel in the hearing of Daniel, how long will the vision be, dot, dot, dot. We're going to go there next week. So in other words, the question at this point is, wow, this fourth power in its little horn phase is doing some significant damage in human history. 
how long is this going to go on and on and on? That's the question that one angel is asking another angel. And one of the angels answers and says in verse 14, well, I'll tell you how long, unto 2,300 days, then all of this is going to be rectified. We'll get there next week, so just hold that thought in your mind. How long? How long will this power ravage humankind? How long will God's character come under gross misrepresentation by an institution that purports to represent him? How long until the beauty of God's character is vindicated on planet Earth? That's the question that's being asked. Now check this out. We come down to verse 16, and God tells Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so this is God, this is Yahweh telling him, you know, explain the vision to him. And then, check this out, Gabriel says to Daniel, understand, son of man, son of man is Daniel in this case, and Gabriel the angel is telling him something. You need to understand, Daniel, this, 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 this final part of the vision, this, the, this fourth empire that is not specifically named, but its characteristics are delineated. Well, Daniel, this refers to the time of the end. Now, this is very, very specific because Daniel's living through a period of time where he's familiar with the Babylonian Empire, and then in this particular vision in chapter 8 with the ram, he's familiar with the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's no doubt heard rumblings of the Greek Empire that is a threat to the Medo-Persian Empire, right? But now he's also seen something that is an enigma to him. He's like, whoa, that's mysterious. What's that fourth one? What's the fourth one? And the angel tells Daniel, you need to understand, Daniel, you need to understand something. That fourth empire, that fourth power, this has to do with a time in the future from your time. This is way down, down, this is hundreds, this is thousands of years, well, not quite thousands, but this is way off in the future. And then the angel says to him, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. The word indignation here is referring to the destructive influence of these empires on the surface of the earth among human beings. There's a whole lot, of, whole lot of destruction going, a whole lot of indignation, a whole lot of empire against empire, and then finally the fourth empire, and the fourth empire is worse than all of the ones before, and how long is the question, will this empire do its dastardly deeds in human history and wreak havoc? Well, what I'm revealing to you, Daniel, is that I'm showing you that some of this you understand because it's present to your time in history, but some of it you don't understand, Daniel, because it's, it's going to happen in the latter, latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be, which is a reference, the appointed time, a reference to the time prophecy in chapter 8, verse 14 that we're going to talk about next week. The ram which you saw having the two horns, he explicitly says, as I told you he would in the prophecy, they're the the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn between his eyes is the first king of Greece. This is Alexander the Great. So again, I'm just repeating now with the explicit reading of the text that we know exactly who these two powers are. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, apparently there's going to be a lot of, a lot of sin and transgression and 
and moral decadence that's going to be overtaking the world and when, 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 when transgressors are kind of overtaking the political and economic systems of the world, a king shall arise having fierce features. Note the language that I'm emphasizing. A king will arise and take advantage of the situation among human beings. Transgressors have reached their fullness and a political figure sees a door to walk through to capitalize on the situation. When transgressors have reached their fullness, a king will arise, having fierce features, note the language, who understands, note the language, sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Do you remember what we discovered in Daniel chapter 7? The papal phase of the Roman Empire does not, does not have its own military. It is a union of church and state. It has co-opted the military of the Roman Empire and taken it under its influence. So when we see the papal phase of the Roman Empire, that papal phase, the Catholic phase of the Roman Empire, it's a religious institution using the power of the state to enforce its rule. Are you tracking with me? So it says, he shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. The word prosper here is a financial term. This institution is, gonna, is going to become extravagantly wealthy. And it will thrive politically and militarily in its union with the state. And he shall destroy mightily, excuse me, destroy the mighty. This is, this is, he will destroy political figures, and this is what history reveals to us. When the papal power began to rise and ascend to power, all the princes, all the kings of Western Europe became subject to the pope. And also the holy people, that is, the true people of God will come under, as we learned last week, under the persecution of this false Christian institution. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. This is likely referring to its theological and doctrinal system, as well as its financial system. Deceit will prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. Check this out. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. So whatever financial and economic prosperity is occurring among the Western European nations, when the papacy rises, history tells us that the dark ages will settle upon Western Europe. Economically, artistically, in every way, the prosperity of the masses descends as the prosperity of the papacy rises. Western Europe became abjectly poor among the masses as the money of the masses was required to be poured into the papal institution in order to build its countless monasteries and cathedrals, etc., etc. And then it says, he shall even rise against the prince, capital P, of princes. That is an Old Testament reference to the Messiah, Christ. This power will actually set itself up against Jesus, but he shall be broken without human means. That's a very interesting phrase. It essentially means this. This power will use violence and force 
in order to thrive and prosper, but it will be conquered by a savior who does not use violence and force. This is what we learned last week about the myth of redemptive violence. Jesus is the only hero, in quote marks, in human history that conquers his enemies with good rather than resorting to evil. Jesus is the only person in history that rises to the position of adoration and worship of his followers on the premise of his love and his goodness, not on the premise of his superior might to tell people what to do on pain of death. Jesus is what we might call the unarmed warrior who conquers by love and peace. He is, in fact, called in Scripture the prince of peace rather than a prince who traffics in war. So here are the characteristics, and there are a lot of them, so I'm sorry, I didn't write this. <laughs> okay, the little horn characteristics are, number one, fierce features. You can't imagine Jesus with fierce features. This is a religious institution, a religious political institution that is threatening, that is intimidating to the masses. It will have sinister schemes. I mean, read the history books. One sinister scheme after another, purgatory was an invention of the church. It was a sinister scheme to persuade the masses that they should give to the church their last little bit of money in order to get some years off of the torture of their beloved relatives who had died that were being tortured in purgatory, but the church could persuade God to let them have a few years off if they would give sufficient cash to the church in order to lessen the sentence. Sinister schemes indeed. The doctrine of eternal torment is a sinister scheme. This power will be mighty, but not by his own power. That, again, I already emphasized, this will be a religious institution that uses the power of the state to enforce its law. It will fearfully destroy, we just read. He will, this power will prosper and thrive. That is, it will grow exponentially. It will grow into, in fact, the most wealthy institution in human history to this very day. The absolute most wealthy institution that has ever existed in human history as an institution, right? And this power will prosper and thrive financially and politically, and he will destroy the mighty, that is, he will exercise his power religiously to intimidate political leaders into subjection and shall destroy the holy people, that is, the persecution of the saints, again described, and cunning and deceit will prosper under his rule. I'm just delineating the characteristics that we just read in the text, and he shall exalt himself in his heart, and he shall destroy prosperity itself. Poverty will occur in every nation where papal rule is established. I could start naming nations right now by comparison to nations where papal rule was broken. Wherever in the wake of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and Zwingli and Huss and all, wherever, the Pro wherever Protestantism was established, there was a commensurate financial prosperity. Wherever Catholicism was established, there was a commensurate poverty among the masses. And that is still true to this day as a general topographical study of the nations of the world. 
He will destroy prosperity itself. He shall even rise against the prince of the princes, that's Jesus, but he will be broken without human means. And this is where, this is amazing, Daniel in chapter 8, verse 25, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, that's the 2300-day prophecy in verse 14 that we're looking at next week and all its implications. The, vi the vision of the evenings and the mornings, that, which was told, is true. Daniel is telling us, or the angel is telling Daniel, therefore seal up the vision, Daniel, that part of the vision that has to do with the time prophecy of Daniel 8.14. Seal it up, for it refers to many days in the future. It actually refers to the very time in which we live, as we're going to discover next week. And I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick for many days. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So if you feel sick and astonished by what we have just discovered, you're in good company. You're with Daniel. I must tell you two qualifying statements. Qualifying statement number one, I don't like talking about these things. It actually makes me a little sick to my stomach. Because why? Because I love people. And I would venture a guess that you love people. And because you love people, it probably makes you slightly, if not greatly, uncomfortable to talk about these kinds of things. Because you love people, right? So I want to qualify, qualifying statement number one. This is not comfortable to talk about these things, but these things are there in the text, and so we need to know what's in the text. So it's my job to tell you what's there, not to try to avoid telling you what's there because it might be uncomfortable. Fair enough? Second thing is, I, my second qualifying statement is this. Daniel 7, 8, 9, and what I'm sharing with you from Daniel 7 and 8 and 9, these things are about empires and institutions, not about the individuals that compose these institutions. Right? If I were to tell you that, if I were to give you, for example, a critique of American foreign policy as an American, you would naturally understand that I'm not talking about every single American citizen. I'm talking about the colossal system with some diabolical individuals who are pretending to care about the world with American military exploits all over the place. You wouldn't take me to be criticizing every American citizen, and you certainly shouldn't take me to be saying anything against any individual religious person. We love people, but these prophecies say what they say, and it's vitally important that we understand what these prophecies say so that we can understand what to do from this point forward about it so that we can receive our mission from Jesus and our mission from Jesus is a glorious mission. Now, the Apostle Paul saw the same exact things that Daniel saw, but he worded it slightly differently, but you'll see, you'll see the similarity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Watch this in verse 3. He says, he says, some people are saying the second coming of Jesus is going to happen any minute. And he says, oh, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the second coming of Jesus, will not come until what this version calls the rebellion. The rebellion. Another version calls it the falling away. Another version calls it the great apostasy. The second coming of Jesus, Paul says, he's writing this first century. Roman Empire. The papacy doesn't exist yet. So get your bearings historically. He says, the second coming of Jesus will not happen until 
the great rebellion, the rebellion occurs, and that man of lawlessness is revealed, the man who is doomed to destruction. That is the power, the institution that is doomed to destruction. And he, this institution and the primary representatives of this institution, just notice the language here. It's explicit language. It's unavoidable language. It means what it means. It doesn't mean what it doesn't mean. He, this institution, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Could language be more explicit? This is Paul describing something very, very specific. The great apostasy of Daniel 7 and 8 that Paul describes as the great rebellion is essentially... In the words of Paul and in the words of Daniel, the way they're describing it, I'm wrapping language around this, the great rebellion or the great apostasy or the great falling away essentially reveals itself in history as a grand masquerade. What do I mean by grand masquerade? Well, what's happening is Paul says that after my departure, this is in Acts chapter 20, that is after I die, I, the apostle Paul, when I die, Uh, I'm giving you a little prophecy. He's telling the followers of Jesus. Here's a prophecy for you. When I die, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's the people that Paul loves, that he cares about. That's the people we're talking. We care about the people, the flock, the sheepies, the people, right? The people, Paul is saying, okay, there's going to be some wolves that come in. Notice what he says. Also from among yourselves, that is in the church itself, under the the banner of, within the parameters of Christianity itself, he says. From among yourselves, men will rise up. That's Daniel's language. He's quoting Daniel. Speaking perverse things, he's quoting Daniel 8. Speaking perverse things, and draw away disciples after themselves. This is a very explicit prophecy that we need to understand. So the Bible identifies the papal church state, that is the the union of religious and political power to leverage force and violence against the masses. The Bible identifies the papal church state as the grand masquerade of human history. Which is to say that this institution pretends to be the church of Christ while horribly misrepresenting Christ by its shame-based doctrinal system and its use of force and violence in the name of Jesus. I know that that's, oh, that makes you a little, I mean, if you love people, you're like, ah, okay, did you have to say that? Uh, I think I had to say it. I think I had to say it. Why? Because Paul says it. Because Daniel says it. I don't want to say it. It doesn't make me comfortable. But the fact is that that we need to look at history objectively and without emotion so that we can understand what what actually has happened so that we know what is, is happening so that we know what we need to do. Does that make sense? Because, because, because Christopher Hitchens, 
is articulating an atheism that was born out of this misrepresentation of God's character. Richard Dawkins is expressing an unbelief that is born out of this misrepresentation of God's character. Gwyneth Paltrow, Taylor Schillings, Brad Pitt, Mr. Bean himself, expressing an incredulous unbelief that is the result of God being so grossly misrepresented that people with thinking minds and beating hearts find it unacceptable. And I believe that we should find it so unacceptable ourselves that we can come into solidarity with unbelievers and listen to their angst against religious institutions from which they have received a misrepresentation of God's character. So that we can say, we with you believe God is better than that. We with you agree that God must be more beautiful than that. We share your unbelief in that ugliness. We stand with you, unbelievers, but have you considered this? What if God is more beautiful than you've ever imagined? What if Jesus is the one and only true and accurate picture of the character of God? What if Jesus, who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? What if Jesus, in all his beauty, is the one that we're called to direct people's attention to rather than any religious institution? So church history that glances something like this. Christ and the apostles preached the gospel and established the early church. And then Daniel and Revelation tell us that there was a period, a swath of history that can be characterized as the reign of bad religion, misrepresenting the character of God, which then resulted in the reactionary rise of secular atheism against bad religion. Just read about the French Revolution, and that's what you'll discover. And then there's this part that, that we can identify with, that we're going to discover in greater detail next Sabbath. We are called by God, by Christ, to engage in a grand restoration project. We are called upon to enlist our minds and our hearts and our prayers and our music and our art and every bit of all the ingenuity and the resources we have to vindicate the beauty of God's character before the masses of planet Earth so that people can say, ah, so that's what God's really like and find it believable at last. That's our calling. So human history can be summarized as simply the uglification of the character of God versus the beautification of the character of God. And each one of us is invited to participate in a grand reformatory restoration movement that paints a picture of the character of God so absolutely irresistibly beautiful that people will begin to say, huh, I have a hunch that God's identity has been stolen and that he has been terribly misrepresented 
and that things that have been attributed to him don't rightly belong to him. Thanks for your time this morning.